0: dive into God's Word, yeah? Come on, yeah? yeah? Yeah. I mean, you ought to be excited, right? I mean, we we, we serve and worship a risen Savior, right? I mean, we should be alive as well. Yeah. Well, let's pray, okay? Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us, Lord, the opportunity as always to gather together and to be in your presence. And thank you for just, Lord, the, the pure time of worship, Lord. It's, it was so simple and and so pure, and we could hear you clearly and feel your presence deeply, Lord. And Father, we just thank you, Lord, for today, and I thank you, Lord, for the comfort that you provided in our lives during this time of my mother-in-law, the loss of her life, and also, Lord, using others to comfort us. Uh, We are so grateful for that. And Lord, I pray, Lord, today, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, that we would be students of your word not only hearers of your word, but also doers. Lord, I decrease that you would increase. I empty myself of myself, so fill me with yourself, that everything that I say and do every thought that enters my mind would be of you, not of me. I praise you. in Jesus' name, all God's people said. Amen. Turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. We're going to cover the whole chapter uh, this morning. And we're now on part 10 of our series, From the Heart. Everyone say that. Come on say with great enthusiasm from from the heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And as always, before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. That's chapter 6. We covered all of chapter 6 and I gave you six points. You, you might remember those points. The first point of last week's text was the plea. And that's in verses 1 and 2. And there Paul wanted the Corinthian believers, all believers, to hear his passionate appeal. And he's urging and pleading us not to squander the opportunities that we are given to speak about this message, this amazing message of reconciliation. And Paul wants them, he wants us to understand the sense of urgency, Say urgency. You know, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day of, of salvation. Now is the time for people to hear the word of salvation, this amazing, awesome, liberating message of reconciliation. That's the plea. The second point was the priority. Say that. That's in verse 3 there, and Paul feels that it's all important to make it a priority not to put a stumbling block, listen now, a stumbling block in anyone's way. And he was committed, Paul was committed to preventing anything or anyone from discrediting the ministry and discrediting his walk with Christ. The third point uh, was the patience. Say that, the patience. That's in verses 4 through 7, and we learned that in the Greek, the word patience is hupomone. Hupomone, it literally means to stay under the pressure. And it's the idea of steadfast endurance in adversity and constant strength under difficulty. And the mark of a Christian who has learned, listen now, who has learned how to walk with God and has learned to serve in ministry stays under the pressure. In other words, they don't quit. They don't throw in the towel. They don't give up. Are you guys with me? They hang in there. And we know that Paul faced continual conditions of pressure, but he never quit. Paul never gave up. That's what we love about him. The other point was uh, one, two, three, four. The fourth point was the paradox, a paradox. That's in verses eight through 10. And Paul there reveals his passion for ministry through several paradoxes describing nine contrasting, excuse me, contrasting. Pairs of characteristics. And what he does, he reveals that ministry, that ministry in the Christian life is filled with ups and downs, right? Ups and downs. And then the fifth one was the parent. Say it, the parent. And that's verses 11 through 13. And Paul there, he speaks to the Corinthian believers as a loving father to his children. And finally, the sixth point of last week's text with was the prohibition. Say that. The prohibition, and that's in verses 14, through 15, and there Paul, what he does, Paul appeals to the Corinthian believers to separate themselves, they separate, separate themselves from anything that would hinder their walk with Christ. Then in verses 16b through 17, Paul, what he does, he quotes from a collection of Old Testament passages to make his, this case, his case, this case about separation. And then in verse 18, what he does, he he quotes another Old Testament passage to finally establish that a believer's relationship with God, a believer's relationship with God through faith in Christ, is that of a child, listen now, to a father. Don't you love that? A child to a father. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of my message today is True Repentance. Everyone say that. Four points from the text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on. Number one is the resolution. Write that down. Say that. First point is the resolution, the resolution. And here, I want you to follow me here. Paul, what he does, he urges the Corinthian believers to make the firm decision, a resolution, to turn from the unclean things that defile them and to seek God's holiness. Did you get that? Again, what he does, I'm going to say it again, he urges the Corinthian believers, us, all believers, to make the firm decision a resolution to turn from the unclean things that defile our lives and to seek God's holiness. Look at verse one with me. Since, or your your Bibles might render it as, therefore, we have these promises. And I want to stop there and say these promises. But what promises? Well, the promises back in chapter six, verses 16b through 18. The promise of acceptance that Uh, He's our God, right, and that we are His what? People, that He's our Father, we are His sons and daughters, and that we can live a closer life and a closer relationship with Him. Now, if you're saved, say amen. It's the promise and the person of God that would motivate each of us, motivate us to seek a closer, more consecrated and separated walk with Him. Now, I want to say this, and you got to get this. God blesses those who separate themselves from sin. God blesses obedience. Can I get an amen? Now, since we have these promises, right, what does does Paul say that you and I, that we, them, the Corinthian believers, all believers, should do? Well, let's read on. Dear friends, or beloved, love that, beloved, Let us, say let us. And I love the fact that Paul's including himself. Let us purify or cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. You get it? I want to stop there and I want you to write this down, Psalm, because in Psalm 51, verse two and verse seven, write that down, Psalm chapter 51, verse two and verse seven, there David Ask God to cleanse him, and and David says this: Wash, say wash, away all my iniquity, and cleanse, say cleanse me from my sin. And then verse seventy, he says: Cleanse, say cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. And he says: Wash me, say wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Well, like David, right? Like David, there we also can ask God to cleanse us, we can ask God, right, on a daily basis to purify our lives, right? And that's a good thing, but notice again what Paul says in the text. Dear friends or beloved, let us, let us purify or cleanse what? Ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. I want you to follow me here. We should ask God to purify us. We should ask God to cleanse us but we also need to put away the things that defile us. Do you guys get that? In other words, I'm saying this is what Paul's referring to. We gotta do our part as well. God does his part, we do our part. Follow me here, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Isaiah 1:16. There it says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Right? Take your evil deeds. Out of my sight, God says, stop doing wrong. Now, and I want to read it again. Wash and make what? Yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight, God says. Stop doing wrong. Now, have you got it, See, so got it. How about James 4, 8? Write that down. James chapter 4, verse 8. Some of you might know this by heart. It says, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Then This is what he says. James says this. Wash your hands. Are you guys following me here? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So God will do his part, but we also need to do our part. Now, if you're safe, say amen. Okay, our growth, you got to get this, our growth in Christ demands our cooperation. Got it? Our growth in Christ demands our cooperation. We must play an active active part in our sanctification because sanctification is not automatic. You know, we don't do anything at all. Listen, it's, it's not enough for us to ask for cleansing. The words let us, say let us, are a call for us to become actively involved in this process. Follow me here. We need to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit and cleanse ourselves, right? And we do this by saying no to the things that defile us and yes to the things that develop us, the things that draw us closer to God. Got it? Notice what the text says. Dear friends, let us purify or cleanse ourselves from everything that contaminates body. And spirit, say body, say spirit. And Paul mentions both body, speaking of the flesh, and spirit, referring to the, well, the body to the outer and the spirit to the inner, right? So stay with me here now. The contamination or filthiness of the body, speaking of the flesh, is referring to the obvious physical sins, the outward sins. The contamination or filthiness of the spirit, the mind, the spirit is referring to the mind. The thoughts that nobody sees. You got that? The sins that are not so obvious. So you have the obvious sins, the outer, the not so obvious, the inner. And you see, sometimes when we try to clean up our act, we only concern ourselves with the outside, don't we? The outer person with just our actions. But here, Paul's saying to clean up your, your what? Your inside, not just your outside, but your inside as well. And what comes to mind, friends, is the prodigal son and his brother. And you might know the story, right? The younger brother, he was guilty of the sins of the flesh. You know the story, right? It was, it was outward. It was physical. And he took his share of his inheritance early, right? And went out and what? He partied. In fact, the text there says that he squandered his wealth in wild living, So you could see through his lifestyle that he was living a life of sin. It was obvious. But then you have the older brother in that story. He stayed home. He probably even went to the synagogue and worshiped God. But he was guilty of the sins of the Spirit. Follow me here. He was guilty of anger, hatred, jealousy, envy, bitterness. When his father welcomed his younger brother home, he wouldn't even respond to his father's command to receive his brother back. Why? Because he, the older brother, he was jealous. He was angry, bitter. Didn't like it when the servant said, come on, let's go. Your your brother's back. We're going to celebrate. Didn't like it. And you see, as Christians, we need to be concerned not only with just the outside, not, not with just the actions, but with the inside. Not just the body, the flesh, but also the spirit. So here's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Cleanse ourselves both outwardly and inwardly. Cleanse ourselves both outwardly and inwardly. We need, as believers, if you're safe, say amen. We need to to remove from our lives, listen now, friends, from our lives anything that is in any way opposed to God. Right? Outwardly and inwardly. Now let's be honest. It is much, much easier to deal with the contamination or filthiness of the body, the flesh, than it is to deal with the contamination and filthiness of the spirit. Right? The not so obvious sins, the inner, okay, are far worse to deal with than the obvious sins, the outer. Would you agree? Now, perhaps right now, I don't know, perhaps you're doing well on the outer and perhaps you're saying right now, you know, I'm not guilty of the sins of the flesh. Maybe you're not. But perhaps you have this little hidden room in your mind where there's the sins of the Spirit. Referring to thoughts of jealousy or thoughts of envy or thoughts of bitterness or anger. How about this? Lustful thoughts, evil thoughts perhaps thoughts of revenge or how about unforgiveness or hatred towards others and perhaps friends it's stopping that video that videotape in your mind from playing and replaying how to pay back those who have hurt you what they said or did to you yeah well maybe maybe you know you're doing well on the outside but what about the inside Regarding the body, regarding the body, the flesh, the outer, okay, what do you need to get rid of huh? that is defiling your body, your flesh? What do you, I don't know. I I know what I need to do. Do you know what you need to do? What do you need to take the scrub brush to in your life? Regarding the spirit, what do you need to take the scrub brush to In your mind. I mean, do you take out the garbage in your mind daily? Weekly? Or you let it pile up for the whole month? Listen, church, we need to clean up the files in our mind. We will say, say amen. In other words, we must actively, say actively, cleanse ourselves both outwardly and inwardly. So we gotta do like just a, a really good examination of our lives today. Every day. Right? Is it fun? No. Is it easy? No. Is it worth it? Yes. Yeah. Then Paul, what he does, he urges the Corinthian believers, us to, to seek God's holiness. And he says this look at the text perfecting holiness. Perfecting holiness. It's the idea of Christ in us, okay, in us that we're perfect, Is maturing, right? It's the idea of Christ in us and living in us to enable us to live a life that honors and glorifies God. It's the ongoing process, a process, of cleansing our lives from things that are opposed to God. And this is how, listen now, this is how we participate with God In bringing holiness to its maturity, completion. And by the way, in the Greek, the word holy is hagios. See, hagios. It means to be set apart for God, set apart from the world, set apart to God, right? Perfecting holiness out of what? Out of reverence for who? God, right? So we perfect this holiness out of reverence for God. God, that's why we do it. Yeah, listen, out of reverence for God, or your Bibles might render it as the fear of God, doesn't mean that you and I are scared or afraid of God. Okay, it means a and I want you to write this down it means a reverential awe. I'm gonna go slow here. It means a reverential awe that produces humble. Obedience, again, a reverential awe that produces humble obedience to a loving God. I'm gonna read it one more time. A reverential awe that produces a humble obedience to a loving God. That's what it means. Got it? Now I want you to write this down. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs 1, verse 7. It says, and I love this, the fear of the Lord. Can we? Some of y'all might know this, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, okay? And it goes on to say wisdom as well. You're right, sis, amen. The Bible also says the fear of the Lord is wisdom, all right? And in instruction, it says the fear of the Lord is also understanding. And it also says this, that the fear of the Lord prolongs, it prolongs life and is strong confidence. Don't you love that? I want you to write this down, Proverbs eight thirteen. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says, The fear, gosh, we got to get this now. The fear of the Lord, this is God's word now, is to hate evil, to hate it. Okay, got it? Now, I don't got to break down that verse, right? I I don't got to interpret that verse for you, right? We don't got to go into Greek and Hebrew to see what it means. It means what it means. If you're not living a holy life, separated from the world, separated to God, if you're not living a holy life, it's because one thing you don't fear God. So, lesson, you ready for the lesson? Here we go. Fearing God will keep us away from evil, from sin. Fearing God, right? This reverential awe of God will keep us away from evil, sin. If you're saved, say amen. I want you to get this. Our strongest defense against the flesh, our strongest defense against evil, our strongest defense against sin is to fear God. Got it? If we fear God, if we, if we revere and respect him, we will live in holiness. Live set apart for God. And you see, when, when our respect and, and our reverence for God is in place, when it's in place, that's when our sanctification and our growth as Christians takes off. Takes off. Because you're living in the fear, the reverence and respect of God for God. Amen? Say resolution. Number two is the request. Write that down. Say that the request, and, and write that down. I want you to notice, and I want you to notice here, notice what, say what, notice what Paul asks. Well, let's look at verse two, what a requests. Make room for us in your hearts. And what Paul does, Paul returns to the idea he left off back in chapter six, verses 11 to 13. Remember that, where he speaks to the Corinthian believers as a father, right? As a loving father to his children, that they would open wide their hearts also to him. So he says, make room for us in our hearts. And notice that was what? Now notice why. Why, he asks. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited, or in other words, defrauded no one. So once again, in defense against those who accuse Paul, what Paul does, Paul appeals to a blameless record in ministry. Now let's go back to the text. He says, we have exploited or defrauded no one. So Paul could be referring to here when he collected the offering for the poor, for the poor people in the church of Jerusalem. And you see, some of the Corinthian believers were questioning Paul, how do we know this is not a, a fundraising scheme? How do we know that Paul's not taking this money and keeping it for himself? Well, Paul was a man of integrity. Yeah? And he had a good track record. That's why he's confident when he says, look at the text, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited or defrauded no one. He had a clear conscience. Notice how deep Paul's love is for the Corinthian believers. Verses 3 through 4 says this, I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. You get that? So I want to stop there. Paul, Paul wanted to be in their hearts. Why? Because, listen now, they were in his heart. And he's not rejecting them for their partial rejection of him. He wants to be reunited with them. Listen now, with them in mutual affection. In fact, he's ready to die with them, right? That's what the scripture says. Die with them and what? Live with them. Verse 4. I have great confidence in. In you, he says, I take great, what? Pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. And I want you to get this. Paul is not writing to condemn them, okay? He's not writing to condemn them or that he's ashamed or disappointed in them. Rather, friends, that he still feels, listen, great affection for them and takes great pride in them. He's encouraging them. The resolution, the request. Number three is the relief. Say that. Because here, Paul does, Paul now what he does, he describes his great relief and joy at what he finally did here from Titus about the Corinthian believers' response to Paul's letter to them. The relief. Look at verse five. For when he came into Macedonia... This body of ours had no rest. For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Now this is, this listen now, you got to get this now. This was Paul's life in ministry. This is what he dealt with. I mean, it was a great life of blessing. I'm sure he was blessed, right, in the life of ministry, but also a life of many, what, conflicts and fears of what? A life of ups and downs. So I want to give you some background here. You might remember this. Back in chapter 2, remember this? Chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian believers from Ephesus. And he sent who? Titus. He sent Titus to Corinth with the letter to the Corinthian believers with the hope of meeting Titus again in where? Troas. Remember that? In Troas to hear the report regarding the well-being of the church in Corinth. But when Paul got to Troas, guess what? Titus wasn't there. Remember that? He wasn't there, which what? Deeply troubled Paul. It kind of messed him up, right? I mean, it caused him great concern. I mean, he was even almost borderline depressed that Titus wasn't there. So what Paul does, remember this Paul, what he leaves Troas to go where? Massa where he eventually eventually, eventually meets up with who? Titus. What a relief it was when he saw Titus. Got it? And Titus there, what, has a good report about the Corinthian believers and they had received Paul's admonition and they responded to Paul's letter favorably. What a relief, right? Let's move on, verses six and seven. But God, say, but God. Anytime you see or hear those two words, God is up to something. Amen? But God, who comforts the downcast. That word downcast could also be rendered as depressed. Now don't forget that, okay? Say depressed. But God, who comforts the downcast or slash depressed, comforted us by the coming of who? Titus. Verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. Love that. He told us about your longing for me, Paul says, your deep sorrow, your ardent, or in other words, passionate concern for me, so that my joy, Paul says, was greater than ever. Paul was comforted, listen now, by the coming of Titus and, and by the comfort that Titus himself received from the Corinthian believers. So you guys ready? We got we got, we got a couple of lessons. Are you ready for the lesson? Okay. This is a lesson. Be real. Say that. Be real. Paul. What I love about Paul. If you study the life of Paul. If you read his epistles. You will come to the conclusion that Paul was real. He was authentic. Right. He was. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, this is why we call it from the heart, is because he shows his open heart. In fact, friends, we get a glimpse from this book, 2 Corinthians, we get a glimpse of his honesty and his vulnerability. Let's go back to the text. I want to prove my point here. But God, who comforts the downcast or slash depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What I love about Paul was he didn't act like everything was always good. Like everything was always okay in his life. He didn't act like he never had a bad day. He shows his own insecurity. He shows his own fear. He shows his own depression. He was real. Now we're talking about the Apostle Paul. This dude was called by God. You can see God moving in his life, but yet this man was real. He didn't act like this super spiritual person, like everything was cool all the time. Right? And I want to tell you this, friends. Listen now, if you're safe, say amen. We don't need to act all spiritual. It's okay. Listen now. It's okay to say it's not going so great. It's okay. You know, Sometimes we feel like we have to put up this front, you know, and because we're Christians, and our brothers and sisters say, how's it going, man? How's it going? Oh, it's going great. Praise the Lord. When you know inside you're not doing so great. I mean, really? Really, you say, praise the Lord, it's going great when you know it's not. How about, hey, let me from my point. Couples coming to church, you're fighting on the way to church. You're arguing and fighting on the way to church, Right? Right? Okay, let me tell you how you put it in front. You're fighting. You're, you're, you're arguing. You park the car. As you walk, and the greeters open the door. How's it going? Oh, praise the Lord. Everything's going great. Thank you, Jesus. No, you're a liar. You're lying. You're not doing so great. It's okay to say, you know what? Honestly, not so great. Yeah? And if you know me for a long time, I've been in your past for almost 30 years. And you ask me, how's it going? How, how am I doing? There's times I'll say, you know, I'm doing good, praise God. There's times I'll say, you know what, not so good. It's not so good right now. I'll say things like that. So let's not try to act all spiritual. Let's, let's be real. Let's be authentic, yeah? The, the other lesson is this. God uses people to bring his comfort. He uses people to bring his, his, his comfort, right? I mean, it's right there in the text, right? And sometimes God will, yeah, sometimes God will just supernaturally give us comfort right straight from His throne. And we experience that, right? But sometimes He will give us comfort through what? Through people. And sadly, some of us like to think that we we can manage, you know, I can deal with it. I can manage life without getting too close to another person because, you know what? Because, you know, we're afraid that, you know that we might be betrayed or abandoned by others. And unfortunately, sadly, that happens. I get that. But God's way is not to leave us alone. Right? This is why he uses people to bring his comfort. Right? His comfort. And that's something Lou and I have experienced, especially her because that was her mother, experienced that people were just poured in and comforted my wife. And obviously, God used me to comfort her, my kids to comfort her. But God uses people, right? He uses people to bring his comfort to them. Number four, here we go. Number four is the repentance. Say that. The repentance. The repentance. And what Paul does, Paul, what he does, and I love this, he contrasts godly repentance with worldly repentance. So let's read verses 8 through 10. Even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Paul sometimes, I have, I have no idea what he's saying sometimes, right? Paul, what he's saying. But he's saying here, even, even if I cause you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. But then he says, though I do regret it, right? <laughs> In other words, what I think what Paul's saying, I think, I can I be totally wrong, is he didn't enjoy the idea of being so confrontational with the Corinthian believers, even though they deserved it. Then he says this, I see that my, and I love this. After he said that, I love this. I see that my letter hurt you. Love this, but only for a little while. I want to stop there and I want want to give you a lesson. Ready? Here we go. Here, here we go. Tough love. Say that. Tough love. Sometimes, sometimes we need to confront those, right? Confront those who are not walking right with God. Sometimes, say sometimes, it takes tough words to get through to them. It takes tough love, right? And I don't know about you, but I'd rather wait to see them change on their own, right? God, can you please do a work before I have to confront them? But sometimes they don't. They don't change. And that's when God calls us and uses us, what, to lovingly, say lovingly, confront and rebuke our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's part of the Christian life. And Paul, what I love about him, he had the guts, the spiritual guts to lovingly confront them and rebuke them. Let's read on, verse nine, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow, love this, your sorrow led to what? Now let's read that again because it's so beautiful, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to Repentance. I want to stop there. The thing Paul is excited about is that the grief he caused the Corinthians with his letter had actually led to a real change in their lives. He's feeling bad that they felt sorrowful, but he's very glad that it brought change. Let's read on, for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us. In other words, now now let's follow Paul's thought here. Let's let's, let's follow his his thought here with verse 10. Godly what? Sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no what? Regret. But worldly sorrow brings what? In the Greek, the word repentance is a word metanoia. Say that. Metanoia. It's a beautiful word, and it means simply this, a change of mind. That's the word in the Greek repentance, metanoia, a change of mind. It doesn't, it doesn't involve a change of emotions, but a change of choice. It involves a change of actions. It involves a change of direction. It involves a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of lifestyle you about face. This is true repentance. Godly sorrow, Paul says, brings or produces what? Repentance. And we know that the sorrow from the world, right, Christians, is different than godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, say worldly sorrow, is just emotional grief. It's remorse. It's regret. It's feeling sorry. That's what worldly Worldly sorrow is, it's feeling sorry. Not feeling sorry because you did something wrong, but because you were caught. Right? Worldly sorrow, listen now, friends, has no ultimate solutions. It only produces guilt, shame, resentment, anguish, despair, depression, hopelessness, and even, as Paul says, death. But godly sorrow, say godly sorrow, is a heart felt conviction, conviction that we have offended God by our sin and results in change. Got it? A change of mind, a hatred for sin, a willingness to make things right before the eyes of God. And What comes to mind is Judas and Peter. After betraying Jesus, right, Judas, after betraying Jesus, was remorseful. He had worldly sorrow. But Peter, after denying Jesus, was repentful. That was godly sorrow. One had worldly sorrow. One had godly sorrow, right? And Peter, because he had godly sorrow, produced change in his life. One death, one life. Now notice, I want you to notice the result of true repentance. Look at verse 11 with me. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. And then he goes on to say this. I'm going to read it from the NIV. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. In other words, true repentance deals with the sin immediately. Got it? No delays. It takes care of the situation, it corrects it now. It's doing what's necessary to clear the wrong you've done. In other words, it's listen now, it's clearing your name. Then he says, "What indignation?" What indignation? In other words, true repentance is truly grieved, grieved over its own sin. Do we grieve over our sin? We should. We're we're indignant, listen now, angry, in other words, at ourselves for our foolishness in sin. Then he says, what alarm, or your Bibles might say fear. The fear of displeasing God of what we've done. Then he says, what longing, what longing. That's, That's repentance. In other words, repentance is what it does. It involves a deep desire, a longing to do what's right. It's a heart that really desires purity and godliness and doesn't want to sin anymore. Then he says, what concern? Or your Bibles might say, what zeal? In other words, repentance is a renewed zeal for holiness, for what's right. Then he says, what readiness to see justice Done. In other words, what Paul's saying here is: wherever repentance is real, it seeks that justice be done. It doesn't protect itself anymore. It wants the wrong avenged. Then he says, "This at every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter." In other words, their actions of repentance. What Paul's saying: their actions, actions, say actions, not feelings, but their actions. Of repentance proved them to be clear. It wasn't words or feelings that proved them to be clear. It was their actions. They did something about it, They about face, metanoia. They had a change of mind in life. And Paul's point is when a person is truly overcome with repentance, it affects the whole life. Not just that one area, but the whole life. The whole life turns over. I want to say this. The measure, the measure of a Christian is not whether or not they sin, because we do sin, right? But whether or not we, you and I, repent. By the way, I want to say this. One of the hallmarks of the New Testament is repentance. I mean, if you, if you look at John the Baptist, his first message was repent, right? Repent. Okay, Jesus also, first message was repent. Why? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at what? Is at hand. Repentance. Now, knowing that, knowing that repentance is one of the hallmarks of the New Testament, knowing that, why is it that some preachers, not all, some preachers today seldom preach repentance? Why? Why? Because repentance is not a popular message. To preach on repentance, you must preach about sin. Right? And some people in church are offended by that. And That's why some preachers will not even mention sin. Or that you have to repent. But we do sin. And we do need to repent. We do need to walk right with God. Amen? So, verses uh, 12 and 16, Paul here, he's rejoicing in the fact that the Corinthian believers had experienced a true repentance that was marked by a change in their lives, in their actions, in their lifestyle, in their attitudes, which is how he wraps up this chapter, verses 12 to 16. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong. Speaking of the man, remember the man who stepped with his stepmother. Remember that? Or of the injured party, speaking of the church. And here's why Paul wrote to them. But rather that before God... You could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Now, I'm going to read out of the New American Standard Bible because I like the way it's rendered. But that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. In fact, Paul is saying this. This is why I did this, Paul. Paul saying, this is why I did this, guys. I had confidence that you were going to do this, but I wanted you to see it for yourselves, that you were going to repent. Verse 13, by all this, we are encouraged, comforted. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. So get this, friends. Titus went there to Corinth to confront them, right? With the letter. But they confronted and, me, they comforted, me, comforted and refreshed Titus. Verse 14, I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all what? Come on, say it, all what? Obedient. I love that. Receiving him with fear and fear. And trembling. Verse 16, you gotta love this now. Okay, here we, here's where we he wraps it up. I am glad and I can have, I'm glad I can have complete what? Come on, say it, what? Confidence, confidence in you. You see, Paul was so convinced by the genuineness of their repentance that he has complete confidence in them. You guys are legit, man. You're real. You're the real deal. And listen, friends, come on now. When we see real, genuine repentance in someone, right, there's a confidence that we have, right, a confidence that God is doing a work in their life. And you see them growing in their walk, right? You see see a true, repented life. And I see it all the time where I see people in this church who I know they're living a repented life, that, yeah, they stumble, yeah, they fall, yeah, they mess up, but they get right back up and say, "God forgive me," and you see them growing and growing and growing in their life with God. I have great confidence in that. say, so, "Yeah, that's it." And that was Paul's heart. That being said, I'm going to wrap this up. Question. When others see you, do they have complete confidence? When they see you, when they see the way you live, they see how how you act, your attitude, your actions, how you speak. When they see you, do they have complete confidence that God is doing a work in your life? That you're growing, listen now, in your walk with Him. Do they see a true, authentic, repented life? Oh, they should. Amen. Let's all stand, Father.